amen, amen, amen. How many of you believe that really down in your sanctified soul, that you're nothing without them? Oh, you can do better than that. I, see, that's a clap for somebody that thinks they are something without them. <laughs> but I wish I had a church that knew that they were nothing without them. Every now and then we need that simple, yet not simplistic reminder uh, that our lives are absolutely nothing without the Lord. I love the verse in John 15:5. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And uh, I think sometimes the way we start our days and sometimes the way we live our days, we think we can do a lot without them. Um, but it is a necessity for our souls that we remember and that we embrace the reality of the fact that we can do nothing without the Lord. Give one, one more shout of amen to the Lord and praise to the living God that we cannot live, can't live without him. I'm excited about the Frequency Conference this uh, week. Uh, I have been getting countless, 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 countless messages um, from people um, who uh, deemed this necessary. We were actually going to do something else and um, as I began to do evangel personal evangelism um, online and in the neighborhood, in the streets and everything, and began realizing, man, we have to deal with these issues. Um, everything from race to different uh, inner city cult religions need engaging in the church, um, needs to be equipped. Somebody say equipped. Yeah, the church, God's people need to be equipped to comprehensively engage the centrality of the importance of Jesus Christ above everything. How many of you know Jesus is bigger than our ethnicity? Oh, that, that, oh I'm going to say that one more again. How many of you know Jesus is bigger than your skin color? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, excited about the prospect of what God has, even in the midst of our country, even in the midst of political unrest, the gospel makes me excited. And so um, this weekend, we are going to have people from all over the country swarm onto the Pennsylvania Convention Center, and we're going to dive into uh, these major issues. Let's continue to keep Haiti lifted up in prayer, and those who are in South and Central Florida. Um, I got some friends who hit me up and let me know that they were okay. And um, so we, we need to keep them lifted up, and we want to uh, take an offering. And so what we want to do uh, next week is we want you to prepare for that. And so we'll take an offering outside of our normal offering. To, uh, and we'll have a stream by then, hopefully. Now, we will have a stream that we want to actually know how to get the money to where it actually does what it's supposed to do versus go through some kind of matrix and all kinds of administrative yip-yappery. We want to get it on the block to people who actually need the help. And so um, you can't tell us to give, and then you got a 45% maintenance fee. That just doesn't even make sense to me. So. Um, we, we, we're not going to mess with those types of people. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Um, we are still in our Woke Church series. Uh, I think we're going to do one more week of it. And so um, next Sunday, H.B. Uh, Charles will be preaching um, here at Epiphany. So we're excited about that. Then the week after that, we'll be uh, uh, um, going back into one last uh, thing in our, in our mini series and going back to our macro series on 2 Corinthians. Uh, turning your Bibles um, very, very simply to uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It's a very, very simple verse, but that has uh, potent ramifications for our time today. Uh, go ahead and read together on three. One, two, three, go. 
Amen. Amen. Simple, t- uh, simple title of the message today in our Woke Church series uh, in this session number three is It's Time for the Church to Do Something. That's, that's the title. It's time. Look at somebody next to you and say, it's time, it's time. For, the church for the church to do something. To do something. Okay, they're not feeling you. Look on the other side of you. <laughs> say, say, neighbor, hey, I got a question for you. Do you think it's time for the church to do something? Amen, 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 amen. Let's, let's go before God. Father, we, um, we um, press uh, the button of our souls to turn to you. Uh, it's, it is hyper necessary that we engage. And God, we need you um, to help us first off not to forget the gospel. Um, help us not to forget the centrality of Jesus, uh, the might of the cross and the resurrection to save and transform souls. Um, and in that, help us to not forget that that has kingdom implications where we live and dwell. And so, Lord, today, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, God, our strength and our redeemer in whom we trust. And help us not to just be hearers merely, but help us to be effectual doers. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody agree with that said? Amen. Amen. To be honest, uh, church, I'm sick of talking about it. Um, If I'm honest, I'm sick of tweeting about it. Um, If I'm honest, I'm sick of Facebooking about it. As a matter of fact, my website, my personal website is dormant from blogs on it um, because I am sick and tired of sick of tired of having to convince people that the church needs to do something. Um, um, I, 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 I am out of the realm of Christian, of doing apologetics for Christians on what the Bible says. Somebody ought to. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm to the point beyond the point to where I'm, I, I've been trolled, I've been trampled, and I've been trifled. And, um, and, um, and, and, and it doesn't really bother me, but it's, it's a, some of y'all swarmed on the guy the other day. Y'all swarmed on that brother real bad. The saints came out of the woodwork and just went to work on this one guy, and I was like, y'all back up just a little bit. Um, um, just back up off him. But he sort of deserved some of his canniness because of his underpinnings of racist comments that he made on my page. And um, it's interesting that I I just feel that the church needs to begin to have a really a three-level biblical strategy that I see in the Bible that we're going to talk about today because today we're going to talk about an action plan. Um, This is not the action plan. This is the vision towards the action plan to give you uh, an understanding of we have all of our uh, different people that we're going to have a sign up at the back and I'll talk about that later, of those who are going to use their professions. And I'm going to let you know the specific ones that we need deeply for this action plan that's driven by biblically-based, gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting commitment for the church to begin to draft up a strategy to see shalom in our cities. And so that, that, therefore, therefore, now I, I, I think that it's, it's beyond time for us to engage in this reality because the church has not been a unified representative of our commitment to Jesus Christ. 
um, we have been a splintered representative because many Christians or so-called Christians view their Christianity through a political lens. And so to be a part of a particular party of our representatives in government uh, uh, is to be Christian or to not be about something in particular. And so we have all different types of splinterings, but there has to be some type of call to unity and commitment to this time for action. And so we come to a passage that some may know and uh, some may not know. And it's interesting that so-called evangelical Christians spend very little time exegeting the prophets. Uh, 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 Goldsworthy wrote a book uh, talking about that all, Christ, uh, all Scripture is Christian Scripture. In other words, all Scripture should be looked at Christianly because Jesus Christ said in John 5 uh, that you search the Scriptures for in them you think you find eternal life, but they all speak of me. In other words, whenever you look at all of the Bible, you should be looking for Jesus. You should be looking for where he is. And so we get scared of the prophets because the prophets step on our toes. Uh, See, we like the people that prophesy uh, uh, in the church and say different things. But the prophets in here are a lot different than the prophets that we have in our day. They're talking a lot of our churches today. Uh, um, They they, they prophesy good. Uh, Isaiah 23, uh, Jeremiah 23 says something. He says, talk to the prophet Jeremiah who says the Lord is speaking to them and I put not one word in their mouth. And so, and so there's a disposition to where we need to begin to call ourselves back to. I, be, I believe the, the, the prophets are the Christological agents of ethics and commitment uh, to comprehensive engagement to show us what it looks like for the gospel to hit the block. And so we come to this passage. In Micah, who has a miniature book, who what they would call a minor prophet, but he has major ideas within it. And in this time, uh, during the people of God in Israel and in Judah, um, uh, the, the people in the countryside, which would have been more of their inner cities, their inner cities would have been more of their surrounding rural areas around Judah, um, because that's where a lot of the poverty was. And, 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 in, and in Jerusalem, they, they were experiencing a great amount of wealth. And they, there was a lot of economic injustice that was going on in Israel at the time. And so what Micah begins to do is be, under this theocratic rule of God, begin to engage the governing authorities about their need to have equitable uh, decentralization of resources from just taking care of one place to be taken and, 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 and gone beyond the, the tower of privilege uh, 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 to the pavements of people's lives. And so uh, he begins laying out different things that the Lord doesn't want over in verse, it starts in actually verse six. <coughs> it says, with what shall I Come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? He says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? He says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And what is he saying here? Um, Micah is utilizing uh, a hyperbole to talk about uh, people thinking that they can buy their way out of accountability to God. 
And, 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 so, and so he said, you can't tithe your way out of accountability. You can't give the best offering of, 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 of the lack of account to get God's off your back from holding you accountable to what he wants you to be held accountable to. He said, you can't even do what the pagans do and give their children as an offering. He said, you can't do any of those things because that's not what the Lord is looking for as a viable offering. He said, he know you got the cheddar and that's not a sacrifice. He said, right now, Jerusalem, money isn't really a sacrifice for you. He says, there's something deeper that you need to sacrifice. And that's, and, and that's a disposition that God is going to show them in a second. He says, has, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That, 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 that's what he said he wants you to do. He said, I, I, want you to, I, want you, I want you to do justice. I love the fact that it says do justice. Uh, 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 I want you to do justice. I want you to uh, love kindness, which is beautiful. Love kindness, which is an interesting idiom here, <clears throat> and walk humbly before your God. And so we've already talked in our time about uh, justice being the proper execution of God's laws among God's people. Justice is the proper execution of God's laws among God's people and because government, based on Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, stay with me, um, are, are, are appointed by God as ministers, whether they're saved or not, meaning that God appointed them sovereignly, no matter what the voting strand is about. Ultimately, the person that, or persons that get in a monarchy, a republic, a republic or a democracy, no matter who those type of people are, God ultimately put them in place for a particular reason. Now, whether they're good or bad, they'll be held accountable for it. But the people of God are supposed to nurture and prophetically be in the midst of that, not pathetically be in the midst of that, to properly engage what it's going to mean to make sure that we pray for them, number one. Nobody going to say nothing to that. Um, because the believers in the Bible prayed for leaders they hated. And so number one, pray, but then they, they, they didn't sell themselves out to lose their prophetic voice. I like the way John did it. John got in front of Herod and put him on straight blast. And he said he liked to hear him. You know what I'm saying? He said, come in here privately. Everybody go out the room. John's about to talk to me. And so that, that's the disposition of a good prophetic entity that's willing to speak and challenge uh, what's in place. <coughs> and so... <coughs> When we look at this idea of justice and we begin to lay this out and continue to work of this idea of doing justice, justice has to be done, uh, not just dialogued about. And I think we've had more racial reconciliation gatherings than I can count. And when I look at the condition of where people are, particularly black people and ethnic minorities, nothing has changed. People have just felt good about getting together, but justice hasn't been done. And so therefore, and, and, and therefore, believers have to be re-energized by the fact that justice is a part of the gospel. It is not, it's not the gospel, but it is an outworking of the gospel. And so when it talks about this idea of doing justice and him engaging this, he wants this to be beyond speaking out against it. He wants us to speak out against it, but then he actually wants it to be done. It's interesting here. 
When he says, and love kindness, in other words, love here points to have a great affection or care for or a loyalty towards something, right? But then kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, which points to God's loyal love towards us. So in other words, loving kindness means believers are supposed to let the covenant loyalty of God frame their commitment to doing what God calls him to do to engage the inequities in their society. So in other words, when you worship and you feel God's presence and them chills go up and down your spine and you tear up because of the presence of the Holy Ghost in the worship gathering and when God provides for you financially when you didn't know how you were going to pay your bills and when he healed your body and told you to run on, when he kept your mind staying on Jesus in the midst of you losing your mind and you could have lost your mind and ultimately when you think about the fact that you could have gone to hell in a handbasket with gasoline draws on, it should motivate motivate you, listen, it should motivate you to not just be thankful for what he's done for you, but now express that chesed towards somebody else. You, you, should, you, should, you, should, you, should, you should never view yourself as a puddle. God created you to be a pipeline. He created you to be a pipeline of grace, a pipeline of mercy, a pipeline of truth, a pipeline of love, a pipeline of commitment, a pipeline of depth. And I love it when God does that in your life because you know how you're allowing yourself to experience the mercy and chesed of God based on how much you give it out to others. And so we look at this idea of covenant loyalty and we look at this idea of do justice And then we look at this idea of loving kindness, and it drives us to something. It drives us to things that I think we have to be doing, and I framed them in three categories. I framed them in three categories. Um, I I, I framed them, and I've talked to different um, uh, professionals about this, and a couple of elders, we've, we've been working through it and talking through it ourselves, but I framed them in three particular areas of doing justice and loving mercy or, or hesed and walking um, humbly with our God. <clears throat> Number one is intervening justice. Intervening justice <clears throat> is the first one. And um, the second one is preventative justice, is what I'll call it. <clears throat> and we'll talk about those main two, and I'll show you the last one in a second. So let's look at intervening justice. This is extremely important because anyone that wants to do a comprehensive biblical justice plan must understand how God works out biblical justice and how it outworks when it's time to do justice, okay? So this is when you go beyond talking and gum bumping to actually practicing. Uh, uh, It'll probably come up on the screen, but uh, 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 Titus chapter three is a beautiful beginning of, of, of to frame what we will be doing. So when we talk about this idea and we lay this out and talk about intervening justice, what is the biblical motivation of that? And then I want to show you what that looks like so that we as believers can be effective at this. So when you look at Titus chapter 3 verse 1, it says, remind them to be submissive. <clears throat> it's up on the screen too. <clears throat> to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, right? It says to speak evil of no one. Wow. Wow. To avoid quarreling. 
Uh-oh. Uh-oh. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Hold on. Everybody need to outline that in their Bible. Now, let me just ask you a question. Let me just ask you a question. How many of you see that as the major Christian response? By show of hands. How many of you show that as the, as, as the way Christians have been responding? Wow. Not a hand went up. But this is what the text says. What is it talking about? Remind them to be submissive to rulers. It's not talking about the elders and the deacons and the deaconesses, right? It's talking about rulers and authorities in the world, even the unjust ones. So first off, it starts with character. Y'all not going to talk back. It's okay. It's okay. I'm by myself. I'm preaching like I see it. Um, it starts, first, uh, intervening justice start with people who have character and the moral authority to engage. Yes, yes. <laughs> Help me today. And so, now look, though, this flows out of connection to the local church first, not you as a renegade doing it on your own. Yes. Y'all not going to talk back to me. Because first off, it talks about spiritual church authority in chapter 1. Y'all, y'all quiet in here today. It's okay. But then in chapter 2, it talks about the nature of Christ's coming as the means by which the church comes into existence and how discipleship happens. In other words, the church should have its own internal discipleship, but it shouldn't become an ingrown toenail. It should engage those outside the ministry. So look at verse, look at verse 14. Y'all know we've said this 100,000 times. It says, and, and, and let our people learn. That means we don't automatically do this has to be learned. So let our people learn, listen, to devote themselves to good works, to doing stuff, not just talking smack. Let them devote themselves to good works, listen, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be found unfruitful. <clears throat> if we're not devoted across the church to this, we're, 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 we're off base. And so where do we see intervening justice? We see intervening justice in, in, in starting in uh, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 58, <clears throat> I'm going to teach you a little bit. Is that okay? Yes. 6 and 7. <clears throat> it, it says in verses 6 and 7, Is not this the fast that I chose? To loose the bonds of wickedness and undo the straps of the yoke, <clears throat> to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. It, uh, it, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house <clears throat> when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourselves from your own flesh. This is great. Don't hide yourself from your own people. I like this. So check what it says. This is what Isaiah is saying. And this is what, how God starts it off. It starts off with moral authority and character. But then it goes from moral authority and character of God's people to what I call intervening justice. That means you can't help a person systemically exist in society who have experienced injustice and a lack of development without intervening for their current needs right now. So that means you can't tell them if they're hungry now, go get a job. And if they're homeless, you can't tell them to get a job without an ID and an address. Y'all not going to talk back to me. We're going to get real practical. You, and so, so you can go put somebody on blast, but if you're not going to intervene, get out the way. 
So, so, so we have to have what, what we call intervening justice. That means you can't jam somebody up on public assistance when you don't know the story of how they got on it. Y'all not gonna talk back today, it's okay. And so, and, so, and so what you have to do is you first have to learn their story. And I know people on public assistance that have degrees but went through deep times of, of disability that caused them to get on public assistance and they got trapped in the system. So the question is, is not whether or not they're trapped. The question is, is not if, are, are they on public assistance? We need to get our nose down from up in the sky and begin to love on some folk that it could have been you and your old big head behind. You could have been in this position that they're in if it had not been for God's mercy looking out for you and taking care of you and walking with you. So you got to have intervening justice. You gotta intervene when people are hungry. Your woman need di- a diapers for a child. Somebody smacking a kid up, cussing them out. Intervention. 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 Don't don't, don't just talk. Some, I watch, you guess what I you see? This is what I hate. You see something in the neighborhood or something, and you go up and I just saw this today. I saw it, you know what I'm saying? I saw this person cussing out their child. And, okay, so you the big person because you put it on Facebook, and that's not what you would do. How does that change that person's circumstance? You don't know what they were raised under and what created the environment to where they thought parenting like that was biblical or not even biblical, but just the way you're supposed to do. Everything's hard in the inner city. So we got to have intervening justice. In other words, when it comes to the church, 911 shouldn't be a joke. Somebody get that on the way home. Or you can check the iTunes library and hear what I'm saying. But the church in intervening justice should be the 911 for the block. <laughs> so that means we, we have to, in, 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 oh God, I wish I had time. Um, Matthew, 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 Matthew chapter 9. This is, when, this, is, this is when it gets real. Look at Matthew chapter 9. We'll look at, we'll start at like verse 27. Now I love this because we see Jesus' ministry is based on the three-level justice plan. You see, when he went in, he didn't just come to earth and die on the cross. He, look, look what he did in verse 1. It says, and Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And then it says, then the Lord touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. So they could see. Look at verses 32 to 34. I don't have time to read as much of this as I would like. He healed someone that was unable to speak. But then, oh, this is so deep. Then he goes to calling the people of God together to talk about the fact that the harvest is uh, uh, plentiful, but the laborers are few. Then he calls apostles in chapter 10. Oh, God, then send them out to do what he was doing. Oh, help me today. In other words, Jesus Christ went and healed diseases, cast out demons. What is that? Intervening justice. He know that he can't speak the kingdom to a guy that's deaf. He know that if he's going to save a guy that can't talk, he can't preach the gospel. So he said, I'm going to loosen your mouth so you can talk about me. Y'all not going to talk back to me. It's okay. In other words, real, real practical practical stuff that Jesus gets involved in, and then he tells us to do the same. So that means that this is a part of our framework. 
of starting with intervening. Jesus didn't come on the scene making systemic change at first. He made, he, he met immediate needs. I can go all day. You can go to John chapter 6, don't even turn it, where the people were hungry and he fed them. Because he didn't want to send them home hungry. That was the point of the passage. His care for them and then present himself as the bread of life. See, it's always connected to the gospel. Anyway, uh, I got I to keep going. I got to keep going. Uh, next level is preventative justice. Now turn over to Mark 9 here because I think this is very, very interesting. <coughs> as we begin to look at this, this preventative justice. So if we look at Mark 9, <coughs> verses um, 15, uh, I'm sorry, Mark 11, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong passage. Mark 11, uh, verses 15 through 19. Jesus does something interesting. In this passage, uh, he walks the people of God through something interesting, even the way Mark frames it. So before this, he curses a fig tree. He comes back and see afterwards that the fig tree withers. Look in the middle. He said, and they came to the temple, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold intervention and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, prevention. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. So well, guess what Jesus does, it's real simple. He intervenes and then he prevents. So what he does is he kicks jokers out of the temple who are unjustly selling to poor people. And, and, and then he doesn't let anyone out or anything in as he, uh, based on him cleansing it to get things right, prevention. So therefore, you can't just have intervention, intervening justice, and leave people out there. In other words, if you intervene and you just fed them, you help them to be in the cycle of continuing in that particular place. However, when we look at the example of Jesus, particularly in this passage, <clears throat> I can go to thousands of passages, right? Where, where now we have to have preventative justice. In other words, we have to have preventing measures. For instance, if we're going to do a crisis pregnancy center in the future, uh, you can't just have the sonogram machine in there for young ladies to come in and to show them the heartbeat of the child and everything. Now you have to have sex education. And, 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 and biblical discipleship of those women so that you're not just telling them, don't have sex, here's a condom. We don't do that. That don't work. Because a condom can't shield you from the wrath of God even though it can shield you from AIDS and some stuff. Maybe. Uh, let's go to systemic leveling. That's, that's the third level. This third level, so we have intervening justice, preventative justice right? Then we have what I call systemic leveling. Now, when we talk about this idea of systemic leveling, this is when you begin to insert and bring gospel renewal to systems, okay? And so, one of the things that we see the mandate of that is turn over with me to Jeremiah 29, 3 through 7. Jeremiah 29, 3 through 7. Are y'all still with me this morning? Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 3 verses three through seven. Now this is gonna help us 
as a church, as we activate and walk in this. Look at verses three through seven. It says, matter of fact, let's go down to verse four. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all exiles. Believers are now exiles. We're exiles now, just like they were exiles, but differently. Whom I have sent into Babylon, that word sent, always in the Bible is missiological language usually. When God sends you somewhere, you'll see Jesus says that in John a lot. The Father who sent me, it's missiological incarnational language, right? And so even though the children of Israel are under discipline in this time, God still has them on mission even though they're on the outs with the Lord. That's a whole nother message. Into exile in Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. In other words, establish yourself there. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives uh, and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare or peace, you will find welfare. Interestingly enough, the word welfare there is the word shalom. Somebody say shalom. Shalom or peace doesn't mean the absence of conflict. It means the ability to have tranquility and to thrive in the midst of it. That, that's what it means. And so, and so when you look at this idea of seeking the peace of the city, when, when, when he's locking them in, shalom means to restitch things back to God's original design. In other words, reframing things back to the way God originally wanted that. And so what are some ways that we want to do that practically? I'm glad you asked. Areas that we want to engage with this. We want to engage education, history, behavioral sciences, arts, law and criminal justice, economics, and biblical theology. <clears throat> Let me say that again. And I'll walk through each one of these and I promise I'll be out your way. Education, history, behavioral sciences, the arts, uh, law and criminal justice, economics, and biblical theology, particularly on race and justice. So let's look at this. So when we talk about this idea of education in our society, um, and engaging this idea of education. It's interesting, you don't have to turn there, but it's interesting that even though the children of Israel were in exile, that the Babylonians allowed them to be educated in their system, just like the other Babylonians. That's in the Bible. Isn't that interesting that that's in the Bible? And, the, and, and how they were able to flourish and weren't held back from their ability to maximize their education, even in the midst of being under captivity, right? And so what we see here is we want to deal with the school, the prison pipeline. We want to actually touch actual personnel. Let me, let me just tell you this, because when we look at this idea of this, uh, when we talk about the school, the prison pipeline, for those of you who don't know, one article says policies that encourage, it says, what is the school, the prison pipeline? It says policies that encourage police presence at schools, harsh tactics including physical restraint and automatic punishments that result in suspensions and out of school time are huge contributors to the pipeline. But the problem is 
more complex than that. The school-to-prison pipeline starts or is best avoided in the classroom. When combined with zero-tolerance policies, a teacher's decision to refer students for punishment can mean they are pushed out of the classroom and much more likely to be introduced to the criminal justice system. So one of the things that I would love futuristically that we do is that we create an alternative school wing here at Epiphany Fellowship. So if you're going to push them out of the school system, let them be suspended here. And we have a small base environment. I don't just want to necessarily start like a Christian school necessarily right now. I want us to think more on, 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 in terms of alternative school wing where we have trained, paid professionals who work in small environments to educate them and help them with character and a biblical rubric and disposition so that they can be reintroduced back into their system. Okay? And so what that happens is, is that means they can get, they can get uh, 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 the, the judge can commit them here and say that they have to be here and they have to submit to our policies. And the problem is, and then we need a training program for non-black teachers on how to work with black children. Y'all quiet on that, it's okay, it's okay. And so we want to engage that idea of that, of that, uh, 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 of that, that school-to-prison pipeline and speak the gospel into these kids' lives and get into their families' lives. Amen. Amen. And, uh, and get into their families' lives and beginning to develop relationships and getting and learning people's stories and helping actual people. I'm just trying to put this out there because I think that we as a church need, like I think we talk esoteric terminology. I have no respect for esoteric commitment. I don't. We have to actually, like, like one of the things, the reason why me and the elders went out uh, last week, because I wanted to make sure each one of us be trained in knowing actual people in our neighborhood. You would be surprised how many pastors and their ministerial staff can't name one person from the neighborhood that's not in their church that they're praying for. But I, I up the game. I challenge you who don't live in the neighborhood. Meet one person, one family, one young lady, one young man that you'll invest your life in. Anyway, that's okay. History's the next one. I got, I, I got a few minutes left. I'm, uh, uh, I told y'all I'm going to get out your way. History. We got to change the narrative. Um, the way history is taught in schools does a disservice to white folks as well as black folks. The white supremacy in how we educate people in history, and particularly on the history of slavery in this country. We have books that no longer really talk about slavery anymore, but then you talk about the immense, uh, you, 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 you got like chapters on the 4th of July but then don't talk about the legacy of slavery and, the, and, and the, the starting of this country on the foundation of the creation of the false reality of race and how it has played out comprehensively into creating the environment of white privilege that exists today does a disservice to people when they say uh, race doesn't exist, I don't see color, where well, this country functionally has trained us and nurtured us to see color in every, not only can I color, but, but, but race degradation of people that are not like us. It's been a deep disservice done, not just to black people, but to white folks. 
the ignorance that I hear from some of my white brothers and sisters in Christ scares me. Give me a resource. No, I'm not giving you a resource. You go research. You know how to research how to go to the moon? And you don't know how to research how to find out some black history? We got real quiet on that part. Listen, we got to work. This is not me being some angry. I know y'all looking at me like, he's the angry black man. Whatever. Um, I'm past you even feeling that way. But it's not, if you've been around me and you've been around this church and you think I'm just a railing Negro standing up here just acting angry, you don't know me, you don't know my heart, and you don't know this church. So you can walk out of here if you want to and talk about how angry the black preacher was. I'm, I'm angry, hopefully, with righteous indignation. Know how you test somebody's anger is if they sin with it. That's, a, that's in the Bible. Anyway, so we have to push schools. We have to push schools to educate, and we need you writing. Oh, help me today, God. We need my historians writing history books, history editions, where you're writing and you're actually doing the work, and you're framing in it the references of history to make sure that the whole of American history is told. We only want to tell the things that make us look triumphant, but we don't want to tell the stories that abase us and bring us low in need of repentance. Ah, I got to move. The behavioral sciences, we've already talked about that a bit, um, but we have several behavioral scientists that have come to me, and we're going to be working with sociologists, and we're going to be working with psychotherapists to talk about how do we fight this, the post-traumatic uh, disorder that African Americans have in this country from slavery, from Jim Crow, from black codes, from slave policing, from the history of policing in this country, like we talked about, uh, I mean, everything, uh, the creation of the inner city, the creation of the projects, which is actually a project, to get people that have, that have post-traumatic stress disorder without any help and counseling and to put them in one place and act, act like they should be sane. Hey, church, y'all, y'all, people, y'all, y'all, y'all feel, listen, you better wake up. That's why we call this series Woke Church. You better wake up. There is a systemic plan to make sure that African Americans become and stay fools. And if you don't believe that, you're going to be a part of the problem, not the solution. Ah, the arts. Know why I say the arts? I really got to take my moment on this. Yeah, y'all the first service, but y'all, I ain't going to push y'all out there. I, I want y'all to get all the love today. All right. Let me tell you, let me tell you about Christian history. <clears throat> when, you, when you write a Christian history and the doctrines of Christian history, Trinitarianism, early church fathers, anti-Nicene fathers, the apologists, the theologians, all the way through, and then you publish a book that has art. See, the art, we don't realize that art is just as bad, and it's, it can be a part of the systemic racism that exists. Because art is the photographing to a person's subconscious of something to remember and to reflect on. And when you paint John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, as a white man, when he's from Libya, North Africa, he wrote the book of Mark, 
Uh, 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 and, and, and he is, listen, 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 an African man. When you paint him white, you're lying. And what that does for black people it, and Africans in particular is it makes them think that Christianity came to America 400 years ago. Most of the Bible writers, there's only one white Bible writer, and his name is Luke. Everybody else was a colored person, like they used to say in America, or person of color. When you paint the church fathers, Tertullian, Arrhenius, Athanasius, Augustus, when you paint Augustine, when you paint them white, you're telling them that nothing has contributed to their history. I'll never forget when we were in seminary, the guy said, what have people of color contributed to theology? And one prof said, you all can really sing. At an evangelical conservative school. Now we have to repaint art. I'm looking at a little, I'm, I got my little kids and we watch Baby Smart. What is other thing? I forgot what it's called. And it's all on YouTube and we're watching, because you know sometimes you just get tired with your toddlers. And so you're like, I'm gonna just put some on real quick. And we, <laughs> you know, because y'all wearing me out. And we put them on and it's on. And then Moses comes up and he's white as clouds. Now, I'm just gonna get this for free. How in the world can Moses go into Egypt his brothers come to Egypt and not recognize him because of how Egyptian he seemed. And he have to unveil himself. What did I say? Well, no, he had makeup on in his face. See, that's the 1950s version of Egypt. Anyway, art has to be redone. I just watched this movie called Gods of Egypt. Everybody, the gods were white and the slaves were black. This is like this year. Like, like the gods of Egypt were white dudes and dudettes. And uh, li listen, and then the people who ruled Egypt were white, and then the, then the slaves and the people who, who carried stuff to them were black. It was the craziest thing. I, I like, this is ridiculous. We're in freaking 2016, and we're still trying to, and you tell me this country ain't racist, even on an artistic front. I need artists to begin to change the narrative. Uh, law and criminal justice, dealing with mass incarceration of black people. I can spend, we already talked about that. Economics, one of the things that, um, Pastor Naira made some wonderful points. I told him, did he, did he know that he's an economist? He's a brilliant economist. And I was talking to him about, um, you know, how in Atlanta, uh, about 8,000 people joined a black bank in a day. And what he began to do is do something for me that was just rocking my mind, beginning to talk through money, how to think economically, not just personal finances, but generational and, um, and, and community finances. And he talked to me about how banks work and how we don't put money in black banks so that it can just be in the bank. <laughs> Did y'all get that? The purpose of a bank is to help get resources to people who need a hand up while they are able to make interest and strengthen their ability to continue to finance that opportunity for others. And we know that in black communities, there's a disproportionate amount of redlining and a lack of banks giving money to African-Americans and small businesses that are led by African-Americans, but somehow the Koreans can come here with a green card. 
This is too real for the church, ain't it? But somehow, and we're not dogging Koreans. We love you. You hear the church? God bless you. You know, one of the good dudes I know that became a pastor, his parents own a, a, a restaurant I used to go to in D.C. But it's funny that people from other countries can come here real quick and get a loan real fast or go to the hospital, and if they get hurt with no insurance, they get taken care of as a diplomatic disposition to that country. But the people who you enslaved for over 400 years, you can't give them a dime to help them have a hand up. I'm done, y'all. It's just the truth quota has ended for the day. Um, so anyway, all of this is in the spirit of us equitably viewing ourselves, whites, brothers and sisters, as us not being against each other. We're Christians, so we're of the same bloodline. And because we're of the same bloodline, it's impossible. You, listen, I got, I got, I, it's nine of us in my family. I got, I got five brothers and three sisters. You try to do something to them. I'm just being honest. That's what the unsanctified Pastor Mason comes out. You try to do something to one of my siblings and see when I knuckle up with them because they're my blood. So how in the world are we as Christians have a thicker blood that's eternal and your black brothers and sisters are going to war and experiencing the war, I'm calling you by God's grace to lock arms with us and lend us your sword so that we can fight the powers that be. And honor the Lord and call each other out in the process. I'm done. Father, we thank you. God, we honor you and we bless you and ask for your might and your strength because I'm so glad, God, that we have a multi-ethnic church because I think we have a great opportunity. Um, we have a huge opportunity uh, to show your name off and to honor and to glorify you and to lift you up. And I'm praying that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection would help us in every area of life and clarity in your word, clarity in the Bible, like biblical clarity. There's so much in the Bible, it just doesn't make sense, Lord God, that we're sitting as dormant people in this world. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ the Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to trust him. If you want to put your confidence in Jesus, and Jesus alone for salvation, his death on the cross, and his resurrection was to take care of and pay for the wrath of God coming against you, coming against you. Jesus had it come against him instead. Is there anyone here today that wants to put their confidence in Jesus? Slip your hand in the air. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus. Anyone?